Good morning, everyone. Don't want to interrupt the conversation and you guys fellowshipping here, but we need to get us started here. We've got lots of things we're going to cover today, and um, I'm back. Yay! So here, here we are. So this has been a, a fun adventure for us. Uh, really thankful for David stepping in last week and getting you guys filled in on Exodus, and I trust that that was a good uh, uh, study together with him, and um, I actually got to listen to some of it. It was just phenomenal. So just so appreciate his willingness to jump in for me um, with, I don't know about a short notice. We gave him about a week or so, but um, with all of the craziness that was going on in our lives with a baby coming, uh, that was a little bit surprising. So anyways, it was just really nice that he was available. Um, The big question that might be on your mind is, is your baby here with you today? No, he's not, sadly. But I did bring pictures of him, so there's some things here that I've got. So this is actually one day old, so he has lots of hair. Uh, so that's fun. Uh, and it is dark, at least initially, but it is lightening out already. So it's probably going to be some kind of a sandy blonde kind of a hair. We still don't know his eye color yet. It's still kind of waiting to see. That, that changes over time anyway. But uh, here's when he's happy, which is fun. Either happy or passing gas. I don't know which one it is yet at this point. So that's fun. Uh, and then this is him when he's not so happy. So that's that's great. So uh, he's uh, definitely one of those babies too, as they all are. Uh, this is him when he's sleepy. So he's just a he's a precious little guy. Um, I don't know what this is. This is a inquisitive. I don't know or or. Um, interested, something like that. So uh, he's just, I mean, we think he's super cute. You, you'll, I know you'll tell me to my face, yeah, he's really cute. And then will be like, I don't know about that. But uh, anyways, I think he's just adorable. So uh, now this is kind of fun. So he is John David Street the fourth. So this is Junior the third and the fourth in one picture together. So that was really special. And that's a really special thing too because my dad went into kidney transplant surgery the day after he was born. So the Lord timed it so that they would get some sweet news right beforehand. Of course, he wasn't able to see him for a little while uh, because he had to be um, distant because of the immunosuppressant drugs he'd have to be on, that kind of a thing. So, um, But he is doing incredibly well after surgery. In fact, his kidneys now are doing too good. They're getting rid of too much phosphorus in his body, which is a good thing, I guess. So he's having to supplement with phosphorus, which is which is hilarious. Um, my sister, his daughter, was the one that donated the kidney, and her kidneys were functioning at 114%. So she's like, well, yeah, here. I don't need this one, apparently. So... Um, that's a blessing. So we are just so thankful that that's going well. And, of course, then they were able to come up this weekend for the first time and see him. This is where these, this picture comes from here. Uh, and then this is my wife and I and our new little baby, our little street signs in the background that we got. And uh, we enjoyed putting that together. Um, she is doing just tremendous. She's doing phenomenal. Um, she's an expert already at taking care of a baby and feeding him and getting up with him in the middle of the night. And, yes, I am helping her and getting up in the middle of the night, too. Uh, but it is, uh, it's a joy. He actually sleeps pretty well for a baby. Uh, sometimes he'll give us three to four hours at, in one chunk 
chunk and then he'll feed and then he'll go for another three or four hours. And we're like, whoa, that's incredible. That's not always the case, but uh, as last night, was, it wasn't as good. But hey, that's all right. Um, this is normal. What's that? It's not going to last. <laughs> Thank you. That's very encouraging. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we kind of expected that, though. So anyways, that's just a joy. I just wanted to give you guys a little bit of an insight and an update into our lives. And uh, we are just thrilled. We just connected with him almost immediately. I mean, well, well, first, I was just telling Aaron this. I was kind of like, wait, this is this is our baby? What? When he first came out of the womb, I was like, what? Oh, my goodness. So, But then after that, it's just like you just grow and you connect with your, your baby. And um, it's like he never didn't exist, right? It's just like he always has existed. It's like, wow, that's incredible. So we just love him to death. And uh, he's small. He's 5 pounds, 13 ounces when he was born. He lost a little bit of weight as normal. He regained some of that back. He's probably a little over 6 pounds now. Um, so this is um, uh, fun to have this little little guy here. And uh, his head is like this, right? It's just really small. Okay, sorry, I could go on and on about that. But um, that's, that's great. Um, I do want to thank you guys for your prayers and for your support to us, your love that you guys expressed. Many of you texted us um, and shared your love with us. Uh, many of you shared meals with us and, and provided meals for us. Thank you for that. that uh, it was tremendous. Every meal that we ate was just wonderful. It was just delicious. So thank you so much. We had more than we could bargain for in terms of just the meals that we needed. And so we are just so blessed by this church, um, just how abundantly you serve. I mean, it's like one of those things where this church is so good at this that uh, this a meal opportunity goes out, and then literally, like, it's already filled before you get the email, you know? <laughs> like, wow, everyone, I can't even serve, you know, like, because everybody's just jumping in. So thank you so much for that. Um, one quick note, just in terms of uh, just administration for BTI, I wanted to share this with you really quick, too. Let me pull this up. Um, this is our... I don't want to pull up Logos. That's not what I want to do. This is... Uh, oh, that doesn't help, right? Okay. Well, let me flip this around here for you. I think it's because I entered the PowerPoint. Uh, yep, that's, that's exactly what happened. We'll get this up here in a second. This is our Steadfast in the Faith website. And I want to show this to you. Not Logos, because Logos is trying to take over my computer right now. There we go. All right, this is our Steadfast in the Faith website. Many of you probably already know about it, but I want to um, bring it to your attention again because it's very much in line with what we do in BTI. Steadfast in the Faith website, I, I, the best way that I can describe it, the most succinct way I can describe it, is it's kind of like grace to you for our church. It's kind of like grace to you. Uh, this is a resource website for you. This is where we're going to be putting a lot of sermons, blogs, uh, little videos and clips, um, articles and other things like that, even um, Steve's latest books that are coming out. Uh, you can even see that, I think, down here toward the bottom where he's featuring uh, a book here, The Awestruck Church. Uh, this is uh, really a resource center for you so that you can have a one-stop shop for resources that are coming from Grace Bible Church and the content. And it's very much in line with what BTI does because um, we're even putting these little articles, or I don't say, want to say articles, but uh, 
Bible introductions, like a succinct Bible introduction, which is what we're doing here in BTI, right? Like a little uh, snippet of here's this book, here's the author, here's the audience, here's when, here's why, here's an outline, that kind of a thing. And so you can always have that as a resource. So you can always go look it up um, and use it as a cheat sheet for your BBRs or something. So we don't have all of those pumped out right now. I'm trying to work on those and be fine-tuned and, and detailed so that you get quality material not just the quantity. But um, I just wanted to put that before you. I'll probably be showing that to you over the next several weeks so that just to keep reminding you that this resource is there and to drive traffic to this website. Uh, you guys will be some of the, the greatest uh, benefactors, I think, from this. And the more that you go there, I think the more that other people will go there as well. So anyways, just wanted to keep that before your attention. Uh, with that... I think we should pray, and then we'll get started, and we're going to be talking about Leviticus today. All right, let's go ahead and get started with prayer. Father, thank you for your grace to us for another Lord's Day to worship you, another day to give you the glory and honor that you deserve, that you are worthy of, for the opportunity for us to sing songs to your name. There's nothing really more thrilling than to do that. This is what we are called to do. This is what we will be doing throughout all eternity. To put the spotlight on you. To make your name known. Uh, That's why we are here. Um, And we wouldn't rather be in any other place. And thank you that we have the opportunity to invest ourselves into your word this morning. We need that. We need your word Just as Peter talks about, like a newborn infant longs for the pure milk of the Word. And so we long for the milk of the Word. And Lord, train us to feast upon the meat of the Word. And we pray that we would advance in that this morning, that we would grow deeper. And just may it foster in us a a love for you that much more, a dedication, a loyalty, faith, that we believe you, we believe your word, that we would believe every word that you've said, that you've spoken. So, Lord, we commit ourselves to you this morning in this endeavor. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so back to the slideshow. We can rehash the pictures again if you want, but uh, now we'll go ahead and get started here with this. Make sure I got the right one. We're going to be talking about Leviticus here this morning. And as we embark into Leviticus, let me just kind of recap where we've come in terms of our Bible survey. (laughs) We've come with Genesis and Exodus prior to that. We've also started with Job. We've talked about Job and how Job is really the first book written, and that's a really important thing to know because Job really helps us to understand why do you need your Bible? Why do you need your Bible? Why do you need wisdom from God? Why is man's wisdom not good enough? And Job helps set that foundation, and it teaches you this is why you need your Bible. So therefore, Genesis. And so Genesis gives us the start of the story of creation and the history of how things took place. And Genesis is all about, you guys will probably get uh, more familiar with this over the next several weeks, but it's all about the who, right? It's the who of the beginning of the Bible. It's establishing who are God's people. Uh, the, 
the seed theme. Yeah, you remember the seed theme, right? Uh, which can be corporately Israel, but really culminates in the Messiah, who represents Israel. The seed theme is very important. It's a key word that occurs in Genesis. The outline of Genesis is centered around the who and around the seed. Because remember, the outline is given to us in the book itself. We don't have to go and make our own outline for Genesis. The outline of Genesis are those sections that say, these are the generations of so-and-so, right? And it helps you to know this is where we are in the book. These are the generations of Terah, which is the father of Abraham. These are the gener- generations of Isaac. These are the generations of Jacob. These are the generations even of Esau. These are the generations of Ishmael. These are the generations of, even at the beginning, the heavens and the earth. That is the outline and the foundation of the book. It is the who. And then last week you discussed with David the what, right? This is the what of God's plan. So the who of God's plan and now the what of God's plan. The what of God's plan is that Israel is called to be Exodus 19 verse 5 and 6 uh, what? Uh, something of priests. A kingdom of priests, yeah? That's the what of God's plan. It really focuses in right at that point. That becomes the linchpin moment in Exodus for what God's plan is. You are to be to me a kingdom of priests. And we see featured in Exodus salvation and redemption just on display and how God is a mastermind at salvation. And now he's bringing his people out of of, uh, Egypt with... uh, of what it describes as a, a mighty arm and an outstretched hand, how he is able to accomplish these things with signs and wonders and powers that have never been witnessed on the face of the earth before. That is what Exodus is all about. And it showcases that God is going to be absolutely committed to redeeming his people. And he's going to stay with his people. Even, you probably weren't able to get into a lot of details, but even with the... The golden calf incident in Exodus 32, which Israel broke every single one of the Ten Commandments in that act, every single one, God still commits to staying faithful to them. That's what that whole interchange between Moses and Yahweh is all about. I'm committed to staying with you. I will keep my part of the covenant, even though you have not. Isn't that incredible? That's incredible. That's what Exodus is all about. And that's what gets us into Leviticus. Now, just really quick, I forgot to mention this in Genesis. One of the key things that I wasn't able to really get into when I was talking about Genesis is that there is a a motif, and a motif is kind of like a side theme in a book, or like in literature. We talk about like little themes that appear as kind of like a featured moment that kind of occurs throughout and one of that motif in Genesis is that God takes evil and turns it for good. He takes evil and turns it for good. Isn't that the punchline of the whole book, right? Wasn't that what Joseph says to his brothers? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Yeah? And isn't that what Paul literally uses that terminology. He picks up on that in Romans 8.28, one of the most famous verses in all the Bible that we know, right? That, um, that God works all things for good to those who love Him, to those who are called according to His purpose. He's picking up what Genesis is talking about. And we see that theme throughout Genesis, that 
Abraham fails and fails and fails, and God is what? Using it for good. Isaac fails. Jacob fails. Jacob deceives. And yet God uses it for good. Even Joseph's brothers, when they send him into slavery, they sell him into slavery, you could not imagine almost a worse plight for a young man like that. And God uses it and turns it for global goodness. What is, what is Genesis teaching us? It's teaching us that God is in the business in history of turning evil for good. That, if you are even thinking just ahead just a little bit, that is what the gospel is all about, isn't it? The gospel is all about God turning evil for good. That He actually turns sinners into good people. That's incredible. So I just wanted to, uh, you to see that. We, have, we could go into that in so much depth, but we obviously don't have time in BTI to do that. But I wanted to make sure that you were at least aware of that highlight coming from Genesis because it's very important and it sets a foundation for how God operates in the Bible. So now when we, we pick up with Leviticus, Leviticus, let's talk about the title Leviticus. The Hebrew term for Leviticus is the very first word of the Bible, which is often the case for the first couple of books of the Bible. The first, like Torah, um, yeah, maybe it's just Torah, but basically they often take the first word of that um, that book and they actually make that the title. And uh, it's kind of like what we do with some of our songs. Like the, the first line is the title of the, the song. That's kind of what they do with Torah. Uh, the Hebrew word is Vayikra, and Vayikra just means, then he called. That's what it means. Okay, and you're like, well, is that really that important? It kind of does play a role in this book that that actually is the first word. The Greek term is Luitikon, Luitikon. And I know that sounds a little bit different than what you're thinking, because it, it looks very similar to Leviticus, and that is what that means. But I know there's a little bit of uh, some changing there with some vowels, consonants, that kind of a thing. But Luitikon just means Levitical, uh, or pertaining to the priests. And it's really funny, because um, it might be the Greek title, the Greek title for this book is maybe a little bit mistitled uh, because we really don't find out much about the Levites. We do find out a little bit, but not that much until probably about Numbers chapter 3, that kind of a thing. Um, So if you wanted a different title, just in case that was of interest to you, I mean, we could call this Israeliticus. (laughs) There's that. That's uh, what Dr. Keith Essex calls it. like, well, likes to call it, uh, he's one of the professors there at the Master's Seminary, uh, Israel Lyticus. Um, we also have uh, Sons of Israel. I think Steve put that one in there. That, that would be a good, maybe, title. Again, because it's really talking about Israel and who Israel needs to be to be God's people. Uh, this is one I put down. You could call it maybe Holy Calling. Uh, that's kind of picking up the terminology from First Peter chapter 1. Verse 15, you are called to a holy calling. The reason why I do that is because it kind of marries the holiness concept, which is a really important theme in Leviticus, with the calling aspect, which is actually the first word of the book and the title in the Hebrew text. So that's just kind of um, a side note there. You don't really need to know that necessarily, but it's just kind of some taking some stabs at some different titles in case you were interested in that. Now, in terms of authorship... Uh, we've been kind of hitting this note several times over these last couple of books. But uh, obviously, we would take the fact that Moses wrote Leviticus. 
And we've cited these passages a couple times already, and I don't want to belabor it, so we don't need to go there, but John chapter 5 talks about how Moses wrote about me, Jesus says. And Exodus chapter 17 indicates how uh, God has called Moses to write these things in a book, meaning that Moses was in the business of writing these things down, which would indicate by implication that he was the one who was writing Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So that would be the authorship. Now the audience, again, just dealing with the who of... Don't get the who of Genesis confused with the who of each of these books, right? The who of each of these books is just telling us the authorship and the audience. Uh, This would again be second generation Israel. This is not the first generation. This is kind of more geared toward the second generation because the first generation died in the wilderness. God promised that not a single person from that first generation would be able to enter the land except for Joshua and Caleb. So that's the who. Now the when... The when of this book, when was it written and when, are the, when is the timing of this, the events? The, the written part is probably 1406 B.C. That's, that's a pretty clear date for us in conservative camps. This would be 40 years that it was written after the exodus from Egypt. And about four years, 40 years after the events in the book actually take place. Okay, So we'll talk about that in a moment. But just as a reminder, the key date that kind of uh, brings this all together is this 1446 B.C. date, this exodus from Egypt. And the reason, again, why this is a key date is because it pretty much divides liberal scholars from conservative scholars. If someone takes a date that's much later than this, they're probably a liberal scholar. If they take this date for the exodus, it's almost like a surefire way to know that this is probably a conservative scholar. So that would be the win. And I know we've talked about that already, so I'm going to continue on because we have more to cover. Then there's the where. Okay, the where of this book, the setting of this book. Where was it written, but where did the events take place? What's going on even with the audience while it's being written? Well, remember, this is the third part of a five-part series, right? Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy. So this is the middle one here that we are dealing with. And this is taking place when it's being written, not the events itself, kind of, but the when it's actually being written is that they are just coming out of the wilderness of Sinai, they are now in the plains of Moab, which is across the Jordan River, not too far away from the promised land, and they are poised and ready to take the promised land. And that's really important because these books are now reinforcing, they're being written at this time to reinforce for Israel why they are taking this land, who they are, how is this going to take place. And so Israel's poised to take that promised land. And the dates of the the book itself in Leviticus span really only 30 days. It's really only 30 days that are actually described in the book itself. It's from actually the first day of the first month on the Jewish calendar. So that would be like the first day of the year for them to the first day of the second month. That's the span of this book. That's any events that take place in the book, that's where they fall. <clears throat> and what we have here is that um, 
This year is 1445 BC, so it's about a year after they come out of the uh, out of Egypt, and now they are. Um, at the foot of Mount Sinai, and they are there for 30 days receiving instructions from Yahweh. There are only two narratives in this book. Uh, The one narrative that we are pretty familiar with is the Nadab and Abihu incident where they are uh, killed by God because of the strange fire that they offer. And then we also have the other narrative in Leviticus 24, I think it's in 24, where uh, there's a, a man who curses Yahweh as he's in a fist fight with another Israelite guy. Uh, This guy was actually a a half Egyptian, half uh, Israelite, and he curses Yahweh. You have two historical narratives, which is interesting because this book is very chiastic. It's very chiastic, which means it builds to a center point and then it, in the reverse way, retraces all those things backwards uh, in almost like a, like, you know, when you see like, birds when they fly in a V pattern, you know, you ever see that, right? That's kind of how a book works. Like it's working its way to the center and then it works its way backwards that way. That's kind of how it's working there. And um, these two narratives are kind of like mirrors of each other. It's, they, they work very nicely in that chiastic structure. One's in chapter 10, one's in chapter 24. They're approximately in the same area you would expect to be lined up together. Um, so, But mostly Leviticus is very prescriptive. It's not very narrative. It's not descriptive so much as like story and that kind of a thing. It's telling you, this is what you need to be. This is what you need to do. And by now, the second generation of Israel had literally grown up in the presence of God. They had actually seen a lot of these things at a young age, but they have seen these things to some degree or another. And they had seen the consequences for not taking the holiness of God seriously. And so that kind of helps set a context for why Leviticus is establishing this holiness theme and why it's being written down so that this second generation will do what the first generation did not. And remember that the original readers, this again, be the, or the original listeners, if they read this to all Israel, the original readers and listeners and the actual people, they had a far more seriousness for the holiness of God than the first generation. They did. They were, they were the best of Israel ever, historically, in terms of their relationship with God and what they accomplished. They were the best. This is as good as it gets from a national point of view, uh, at least from a heart point of view. All right, that's the where. Now let's talk about the why. The why. All right, so we've talked about Genesis. Genesis is the who, yeah? Exodus is the what? I hear a resounding sound, yeah? (laughs) Well, what? Now Leviticus is the how that's exactly right this is how this is indicating how God's kingdom plan for Israel is going to unfold it's going to happen through holiness through holiness that's how they're going to be a kingdom of priests that's how they're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation it's through holiness now we're going to talk later the other books but Numbers is going to cover the win Deuteronomy is going to cover the why, 
Joshua is going to cover the where. And I just want to keep emphasizing these things because it's a really easy way to understand what each book is about at the beginning of the Bible. And it answers every important diagnostic question that you would ask about a certain subject. Right? You got the who. You got the, the what. You have the why and the how and the when and the where. Those are pretty much all the important diagnostic questions that you would need to know, and God answers them all in the first six books in great detail. Uh, That's really neat to see how God has orchestrated the Bible in that way for us. Leviticus then informs us that the only way that God and man can be reunited in the kingdom is for man to be set apart as holy unto him. As holy unto him. Even holy standards were established. Even though the, the, these holy standards were established for God's people, there still remained a separation between God and his people. There was still a veil that separated Yahweh from his people, even though there was a holiness standard that was able to be set up. And this really helps us to understand something. This indicates that this structure that was created by God, this law, this priestly structure that God enforces in Leviticus, is really just scaffolding for something much bigger. For something much bigger. Leviticus and the priestly laws and the law itself, the Old Covenant, they are not an end to themselves. This is where Orthodox Judaism really... I think fails at this point because they misunderstand what the purpose of these things are. They are not an end to themselves, and we will talk about that more a little later. Now, if you don't follow these things, yes, you're in sin, absolutely. But these things are not just laws to follow laws. They are for greater purpose, and that is why there are instances in the New Testament that you see Jesus actually demonstrating not just his own life breaking the Sabbath, quote-unquote, yes, but he actually goes to the Old Testament and shows them, did you not read also what? That David did this and he shouldn't have done that, technically, if you were technical with the law. right? These are not an end to themselves. That's really important, and we can talk about that more down the road here, but this is at least giving us a good idea. But just to kind of put it all succinctly together for the why, the purpose statement, the why of Leviticus, to instruct Israel about the holiness of God and the holy standard that they are called to replicate in order to be the kingdom of priests to which they have been called. I try to make these as succinct as possible, packing in the key terms and phrases as best as possible to give you a good idea of what this book is all about. Okay, so that would be the why. Okay. All right, now the how. The how. Uh, Again, not to be confused with the how of Leviticus, that it acts as the how for Torah, but this is the how in terms of the terminology and themes that are used within the book, and we do this for every book. There is the term calling, which is, again, the first word of the book. Uh, Then he called to Moses. Uh, This word calling does occur several times throughout the book, and it is interesting that it kind of can be paired with the fact that there is a holy calling that they're being called to, yes? 
there's also obviously the holiness theme that we see so many times that I had to put an ellipsis there because there's just too many passages to put on a PowerPoint. All right. One of the key ones that you see there in uh, I, I bolded in chapter 19, verse 1, you are to be holy for I, Yahweh, am holy. Very important. That kind of marries the two concepts, that God is holy himself, yes, but then you also have the people who are called to be holy. The people are called to be set apart. And so we see this in detail where Yahweh is called to be holy. Uh, we see this in like chapter 11 and in chapter 19 and 20 um, and, and several other places as well. But this is really helping us to understand this, this holiness. This word holy is used approximately 150-ish times in this book. 150. In a, in a book of 27 chapters. So you're dealing with almost like six times per chapter that this word is used in various forms. Kadosh, Kadesh, um, and uh, even Mikdash, which is the, the, uh, the sanctuary or the, the tabernacle or, or the holy place. Uh, it, this word holy just means to be set apart. Uh, you know, sometimes we can use a word so much that we kind of forget what it actually means. It literally just means to be different, to be entirely unique. Um, maybe a good word <coughs> for this is unprecedented. <laughs> unprecedented. We just don't have a precedent for it. Uh, that might capture it a little bit because sometimes we think of holiness as simply just, well, he's pure, he's righteous, he's, he's moral. Like, that's holy. It is, it involves that, but it's more than that. And you'll, you'll see that. And that's why we get confused. Like, why is um, a thing, how can that thing be called holy? It, it, it doesn't have a heart. It doesn't have a mouth. It doesn't have, right? Like, that kind of thing. It's just that thing, right? It can't do moral things. That's because holy is, uh, it's a little bit different than sometimes what we assume. There is a distinctness. There is an unprecedentedness. And how is God holy? How does he showcase this? Well, yes, he does showcase it in his morality, uh, that he's different, that he's perfect, that he's sometimes, really, he's oftentimes beyond us. We can't comprehend it. We just don't have anything to compare it with. And I think what's really cool is he's holy in the way that he operates in counterintuitive ways. God operates in ways that are counterintuitive to us. And the one of the most common ones that we're so familiar with is the gospel itself. He operates in counterintuitive ways in the gospel. We just don't have a precedent for that among any other God. That God would actually have mercy on sinners and yet still uphold His righteousness? How is that possible? That's a holy concept. There are also four times that Israel is called to be holy. I mentioned that in chapter 19, verse 1. Israel is called to be holy, just as Yahweh is holy. They are to be unique and different. And so we see passages related to that as well. There is a separateness that they need to have from the nations. They need to be different than them. And you're like, well, it just needs to be moral, right? They just need to be loving. They just need to be pure. They just need to have some kind of a moral standard that they hold to. Yes, that's all true. But there were also things that they were told to do that just don't make a lot of sense to us because holiness is a little bit different than we often define it. They were even supposed to wear different kinds of clothing. They were supposed to eat different kinds of things. Uh, Different practices like boiling a young kid in its mother's milk, a kid goat in its mother's milk. What does that mean? I actually have a little section on that a little bit later. We'll talk about that. Um, 
if we have time. Uh, and th- there's just a separateness that they need to be different. That, that's important in the Levitical um, law. And you can see how different that is than what people approach uh, church today where they actually try to make themselves more like the world instead of actually being different. I know that there's a sense where um, we don't have to be bound to wear certain clothing and wear, eat certain kinds of food, but um, there is that has been lost upon the easy believism churches today. So Israel is called to be holy. We're called to be holy. Also, as I mentioned, things. There were different um, parts of the, uh, the tabernacle that were called to be holy, to be set apart. Uh, and they're supposed to understand that. This is a unique thing. Also, the times, the timing of things, the, the, the festivals that they were to have. Those are holy. They are set apart. And... Uh, we see that with several of their festivals, including the Day of Atonement, which becomes a very featured festival and time for Israel. It is holy and set apart, consecrated to Yahweh. Okay, so that's the holiness theme. There's also this term that occurs a lot in the book, which is the word atonement. The word atonement. It literally just means covering. There's a covering that's taking place. And you can see several instances there. I think I've got a little pointer. Yeah, see several instances there of the word being used for atonement. There's also this phrase or these terms common or the profane. You can translate it either way. Something that's called profane. But really the root idea is just that it's common, right? It's kind of the opposite of what it means to be holy. This is the everyday kind of a thing. Don't think of it as like, these are bad things. These are sinful things. No, they're just common things. Like, just like a common jar that someone would use to pour water into. uh, Or... You know, common clothing that they would wear. These are just common things. And it's just being associated with those common things. Uh, every day, we're, we, if you know, you're an Israelite, you're dealing with these common things on a regular basis. That's normal. That's actually the average thing. That's the thing that's normally happening for you. You're not usually dealing with the holy things. Then we also have this terminology of the clean and the unclean. We see that a lot. And the calling for Israel to constantly cleanse themselves. And it's interesting, um, when something becomes unclean, it needs to be washed. Not that it's actually like got germs on it, and that you actually have to get it washed because of the germs, and that's really the, the concern. That's not the concern. It's the fact that that washing helps to teach Israel that this has to go through a process of going from unclean to clean. It's teaching them how they approach God. It's to approach Him in a very serious way and there is a separation between them and God until there's some kind of a cleanliness. And even then, even when they do get clean, there's still a a separation that's that's there that they ultimately can't get through. And uh, that's what's amazing about us under the New Covenant is that we have full access to God. We have absolutely full access to God. We see that terminology in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have what with God? 
peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access. Hear that? Access. That's terminology for access into the veil. And that veil no longer is preventing us from ever having access to God again. This is something that Israel was learning that this is going to require an enormous amount of sacrifice for that veil to come down. And it never did come down in the Old Testament until Jesus came. There's a process then that to become clean, you have to become clean first and then you can become holy. Okay, that's kind of the relationship between what it is to be clean and what it is to be holy. You need to first be washed, cleaned, and then you can become holy. And this involved like any kind of like body uh, bodily emission from the from the body, so you would become unclean. Um, any part of any sickness or injury, anything like that. Uh, any kind of a wound, these things would make you unclean. And it would require you to go through a ritualistic purification process. Again, not just because of the germs. That's not really the idea. It's because it is to teach you that you have something that is, uh, perhaps you have a wound on your body and it's grotesque. You don't approach the holy God of Israel with that. You need to recognize that he, he's not common like us. And that's really important. And that's what it was, it was teaching them to do. And you also can't even live your daily life in holiness when, or in clean, cleanliness when you come into contact with someone who is unclean. And so there is a separateness there as well. It is really to remove every single factor that would cause someone to even associate with the fact that they were unclean at at one point or another. So the point is that all of this meant to be an instruction as to what it means to be a holy people. You can't come into the presence of Yahweh in an unclean state. And remember, the law is designed to teach. That's what Torah means. Torah is not just the word law. Like, it's not like the word rule. Like, these are rules that we need to keep. That's not what Torah means. Torah is just, it, it's a noun that means to throw or to cast, to throw something. Okay, so you're like, oh, so Torah just means to throw. No, well, it has this idea of to teach someone. Uh, and there's a whole etymology of how they get there with that word to throw. But the idea is, is to teach, to instruct. So when we understand that, then Leviticus is really a teaching tool. It's not just rules. They're not just an end to themselves. So being unclean, this is really important. Being unclean in the Levitical system is not a sin. You understand that? That's really important. Being unclean is not a sin. It makes it sound like it is, because you've got to, got to like rectify the situation. It's not a sin. It's part of the normal, everyday activity. Now, not following the commandments to purify yourself when you have the opportunity to do so, that is a sin. That is a sin. Um... This separation of commonness and uncleanliness is supposed to teach man even so, even though being unclean is not a sin in and of itself, 
that separation is teaching them that there is yet sin in every man's heart. And I want, want to emphasize that too. That's important. Because these laws do teach them something. That why does there have to be a separation between God and man? Because people do sin. People are sinners. That is true. But that doesn't mean that the uncleanliness of a certain situation means that that person is in sin because of that. Uh, even in the future kingdom, this is what's so cool. In the future kingdom, we see this in Zechariah 14, that everything that's common, the everyday things, will be holy unto the Lord. Even the bells on the the horses and the pots, they will be holy unto the Lord. The common will be reversed and become set apart and holy. That's what's incredible. We look forward to that day in the kingdom. That's God restoring uh, the new creation and making everything holy. And uh, we look forward to that. All right, let's talk about the literary structure here and that chiasm that I was talking about there. And I adapted this, just as a side note, I adapted this from the Bible Project. Now, I'm, I'm putting a caveat here. Um, be careful with the Bible Project. Uh, there are a lot of good things that they've put out. But there are some things that are not so good. And I've done a thorough look into their videos, well, back a couple years ago, but it was after they had basically made all of their Bible videos. Then they've done a lot of theology videos. I haven't seen all of those. Um, there are some really good things that they've come out with, and I'm, I'm borrowing their, generally, I think I, I retrofitted it a little bit, I'm borrowing their chiastic outline for Leviticus. That's pretty... Um, that's not really dealing with a lot of uh, uh, serious issues by just borrowing outline from Leviticus. But they have some issues with uh, six-day creation. I don't think that they hold to that. Um, they have some issues with uh, women's roles. They have a really, really bad hermeneutic on Revelation. It's really, really bad. Uh, and they there's just a lot of areas that if you go through their videos, just go through them with a, a discerning mind. Uh, because there are just some some things that are not so good. I think that they even struggle with some of their um, the dating on some of the books of the Bible, which kind of makes me wonder: like, do you actually believe that these miracles were possible if you're going to date it that late? That kind of a thing. So, anyways, but to say this, their outline of Leviticus, I think, is is spot on. I think it really catches the. Uh, the chiastic structure of Leviticus. And so you can see here, as I'm bringing it out, I'm pushing them out, indenting them further to show you the chiasm that's really described here. That you have the routine regulations in chapter 1 through chapter 7, and then that's mirrored at the end of the book in chapter 23 through 27. You have the priestly regulations in chapter 8 through 10, and then chapter 21 through 22. You have purity regulations in chapter 11 through 15, and then chapter 18 through 20. And then where does it all center? Around the Day of Atonement, yes? You have two full chapters dedicated to the Day of Atonement. That's interesting that there is this atonement theme that atones for sin for the whole nation. It's the entire nation. It's not just thinking, I committed a specific sin today, I'm going to offer a lamb to the priest because of that specific sin. No, this is just a catch-all for everyone. 
Okay, whether it's related to something specific or not. And it happens every year, and we have even Orthodox Jews celebrating that to this day, every year. Very important festival for Israel, and um, a very sober one as well. It's their most sober festival of all. Now, that's the literary structure. That's where the slides stop. And I just have a few more minutes, and I'm going to talk about a couple of things, I think, to to demystify some complications in Leviticus. Uh, And the first thing I want to talk about is the sacrificial system and how this works and the law. The law specifically, I know that I alluded to that earlier, and I want to address that and make sure that we demystify any issues here with that. Like Hebrews 10 verse 1 talks about, you must understand that the Levitical system is a shadow, it's a shadow of the the real thing. It's a shadow of the real thing. Uh, If I could give a real world illustration, Legos teach kids how to build things, yes? They teach kids from an early age how to be, you know... To work in construction, right? But it's not construction, right? But it's very simple, very, very simple for them at an early age. It's a great starter for them, and that's exactly how the law works. It's a great starter. It's teaching you about the fundamentals, but it's teaching you to go beyond, to go beyond the law, to go deeper, to really ask the question, what does God really care about here? What is He really interested in? Is it just so that we don't mix this wool with this kind of wool together in our clothing? Is that what He really cares about? That's the question that should be asked on every Israelite's mind. And that's why we must be careful not to assume that everything under the Levitical system is going to work exactly the same in the real world. It's not. It's not going to always work exactly the same. A Lego piece is not quite the same as a cinder block. Yes? It's just not the same. They're going to operate in different ways. And we must understand there's going to be differences. And so just because something... This is another important point. I think this is maybe misunderstood a lot. Just because something requires a sin offering, (laughs) this might blow your mind, okay? Just because something requires a sin offering does not necessarily mean that the person committed a sin in his heart before God. You're like, what? Really? I would argue that's true. And you can see that. You're like, how do you know that? Because in Numbers chapter 6, when it talks about the law of the Nazarite, when he's done fulfilling his vow, he has to... There's nothing specific that's tied to this. He offers several offerings, and one of those is a sin offering. And you're like, what? He offers a sin offering. And you're like, maybe it's kind of for his whole life. Well, I guess you could maybe argue that. But usually sin offerings are tied to what? Something specific that you did. And that's not the case with the law of the Nazarite. In fact, this helps to demystify also why in... Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48, you see that there are sacrifices that are even sin offering sacrifices. And that blows people's mind. This is why people want to jump ship a lot at that point to covenantal theology. Because 
how could the future kingdom have sin offerings when Jesus' once-for-all offering has been made for sin? Like, yeah, that's a pretty compelling argument. Hebrews makes that very clear. Except if you understand that sin offerings are not always specifically for sin in one's heart before God. Now, they often are. That's often the case, but that's not always the case. What is a sin off? What does sin mean? It means to miss the mark. It means to miss the mark, and it's not always just morally. That's really important. It's not just morally. If if I could put this in an example for you uh, that might help you, you know, there's there's a law there in in, um, in Torah where they are to put up a guardrail on the roof of their house so that someone doesn't fall off, you know, and and get injured. Like, you need to put up your guardrails. Well, what if someone's in the middle of putting up their guardrail and someone actually still falls off? It's not like that person actually intentionally sinned, right? He's actually working on it, but he still would need to offer, according to the law, a sin offering for that. But it doesn't mean he's necessarily sinned. So I would argue that that's the case. Um, For for the Levitical offerings, one's spiritual cleanness or cleanliness depended upon him making these offerings. If he didn't make the offerings when he had the opportunity, then there is a heart issue there. If he has the opportunity to make that offering, he does have a heart issue. That is a legitimate sin. But... Uh, And it's not just under the Levitical system. So we have to be able to separate the two. There are sin offerings that are offered under the Levitical law for the Levitical law itself, but it's going to be sometimes different when you're dealing with the actual reality of something taking place. Okay, that's really important. Um, Let me kind of skip ahead a little bit. Let me talk a little bit also about the offerings themselves, okay? There are five specific offerings, and I didn't actually, let me see, did I put a, oh, I did, yay! I can write these down here for you so you can kind of help see it visually. There is whole burn offerings. Whole burn offerings. And um, when I finally heard someone teach on this, it helped me to understand, oh, that's what that's for. All right, this is really for full dedication, Okay, that's what this, this is what this is referring to. Full dedication. That's why the whole offering is burned. Because you're saying, I am fully dedicated to you, O Lord. Okay, that's what a whole burnt offering is. And that's described in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, there are grain offerings. Grain offerings. Now, grain offerings is referring to the food that you have, the uh, the 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 you know the, the the produce from the field that you have, and you can imagine what this would be for. This is Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Oh, I can't spell today. Wow, that's fun. Thanksgiving. Okay, and you can see why that would be the case. If you're truly thankful, then you would be willing to give up some of the food on your table to the Lord. It shows that you really value what He's given to you and that you know it came from Him. Okay, that's what a grain offering does. Then there's peace offerings. This is an interesting one because actually um, Solomon offers a peace offering to the Lord, and I'll explain that here in a second. But this refers um, to the fact that the relationship 
is at peace. This is not to restore the relationship to be at peace. You have to understand this. This is after the fact. This is after the fact. This is demonstrating, I acknowledge (coughs) that's already evident between both me and you, Lord, that this relationship is at peace. Thank you for that. Uh, And Solomon offers that in 1 Kings chapter 3 after the Lord reveals himself to him. And you remember that story where he asks him, what do you want me, what what should I give to you is what he asks him. And so then Solomon asks for a listening heart and then wisdom and even wealth are given to Solomon as a result of that. But Solomon after that offers, sorry, I totally uh, went through there. He offers a peace offering. He offers a peace offering. Why? Because he recognizes that God has acknowledged that their relationship is at peace. Their relationship is at peace. And what's interesting is that the word peace in Hebrew is shalom. And the word for Solomon, as you would pronounce it in Hebrew, is shlomo, which means peace. Okay? So that's really interesting that he would do that. But he recognizes that he is at peace with God. And his the entire land of Israel is at peace at that point. So he's just baffled by that fact. Then, as we talked about a little bit already, sin offerings. Okay, sin offerings. Again, I know I emphasized a lot that there, there are instances where I would argue a sin was not necessarily committed in one's heart before the Lord, but there was a missing of the mark under the Levitical system. The behavior itself was missed uh, unintentionally so, and it uses terminology that talks about unintention, unintentional uh, mistake, that kind of a thing. Um, that terminology is definitely used there. But a lot of times, too, sin offerings are legitimate sins before God, and so you're offering those on your behalf specifically for your own sin. And then, of course, we have finally guilt offerings. Okay, guilt offerings. And guilt offerings are, you're like, well, that's kind of like the same as sin offering. What's the difference between those? Guilt offerings uh, indicate that there is some kind of a physical, material restitution that needs to be made because of the sin that you give to someone else. And then, as a bonus, there is also, as we talked about, the Day of Atonement, which is something that all of Israel would participate in for the for the entire nation as a whole. Okay, um, let me just really quickly because I mentioned I would say this. Let me just mention this: uh, boiling a kid in its mother's milk. Okay, not a not a child, um, a, a goat kid, right? In its mother's milk. Where does that come from? Um, that is the principle why modern Orthodox Jews believe they cannot eat cheeseburgers. Okay, That's where that comes from. I don't know, you, you probably know that. Maybe you didn't know that. That's exactly where it comes from. You can't mix the meat of the goat with the milk, the cheese, and you can't put them together, right? Uh, there's just really no biblical evidence for that whatsoever at all. In fact, what they've found through archaeology is that the Canaanites, uh, through some translation of some of the U- Ugaritic language, is that the Canaanites would offer goats as a sacrifice in their mother's milk. That's something that's actually established historically. So what's going on there? God is saying, you shall not be like them. You shall not do the practices that they do, even though that's a very common thing to do. Why? Because I want you to be different. And that's what holiness is. I want you to be different. And because of that, we understand for ourselves, that's what we're called to be. We're called to be different and set apart. And so 
as we gather every Sunday, our goal is to worship God exactly as He's described, even if it is different from the world. Okay? Well, let's pray, and then we'll commit that to the Lord and our worship together this morning. Father, thank you so much for this time and that we could see modeled here in Leviticus your holiness, your uprightness, Yes, your morality, but also your unprecedentedness. The fact that you are distinct, you are separate. And it's hard to even fathom that. And one of the greatest examples of that is the gospel itself. The gospel itself is holy. It is set apart. It is distinct. There is, it is unlike anything we've ever recognized or understood. Because you have taken sinners... And you have restored them in righteousness. You have taken us. You have made us draw near with no veil between you and us. This has been your heartbeat all along. That you would dwell with us and that we would dwell with you. And Lord, to do that and then to uphold your righteousness even the same, it required the sacrifice of your very Son to bear our sin upon His shoulders. And so we, we marvel at that. And because of that, we know that under this new covenant, you have given us the spirit to walk in holiness and the ability to do so. So, Lord, help us to do so in our lives and help us to offer up to you a holy sacrifice of praise from our lips as we sing praises to you and as we listen to your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, everyone. Appreciate it. And we'll uh, see you in the service there.